Welcome to Documentary Storytellers. My name is Chris King. I'm a documentary storyteller exploring the ways in which we can create impact through our photography and filmmaking. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get this latest episode out. I do hope to get back to publishing once a fortnight and then hopefully at some point next year, once a week. But for me to be able to do this, I need your help. Firstly, if you know anyone who is striving to have impact with the work that they produce, then please get in touch with me at chris at documentarystorytellers.com and send me their details. And if they're a good fit and up for chatting with me, then I'll get them on a future episode. Secondly, if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the production of future episodes and help me to get the amazing work of everyone I interview in front of more people and help encourage greater discussion around the important topics that we discuss, then please consider signing up to my Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash documentary storytellers. In this episode, I'm speaking to Smita Sharma, a Delhi-based photojournalist and visual storyteller reporting on critical human rights, gender, social justice and environmental issues, both in India and throughout the global south. Smita is actively engaged in public speaking, victim advocacy and international public education, and her work has been exhibited and published globally, including at the UN headquarters in New York. She recently published her first book, We Cry in Silence, documenting cross-border trafficking of underage girls in South Asia, published by Photo Evidence. Smita has been organizing a campaign in the region aimed at educating and raising awareness amongst the communities most vulnerable to human trafficking. We discuss all this amazing work that Smita has done and the other steps that she's taken to maximize the impact of her work, along with her motivation for doing what she does, her experiences with publications and organizations in the global north, and much more. And so here's my interview with Smita Sharma. Enjoy. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and the work that you do, first of all, that'd be great. I'm Smita Sharma, currently based in Delhi, India. I'm a photographer, a photojournalist, and I have been documenting social issues, human rights, uh, sexual crimes, and environmental issues primarily in the global south. What motivated you to pick up the camera originally? I think I was always communicating better with visuals uh, ever since I was a child. But I never thought of taking up photography as a career for a very long time. But I always knew that I wanted to do something artistic, something to do with communication. Um, And uh, I grew up in a small town called Shillong. Uh, in the northeastern part of India, which is kind of like in the foothills of the Himalayan mountain range, which is uh, very pretty, uh, lots of beautiful landscape. Uh, but I grew up in the 90s, uh, which was a very difficult time in that region because a lot of militancy and racial violence issues. So while growing up in that region, I faced racism firsthand and uh, I saw a lot of violence. There was sometimes, you know, as a child, we would hear things happening, we would see fire, we would see some kind of violence, a lot of uh, mob violence sometimes. And sometimes schools used to be closed for two or three months, which was great as a child because it gave you a lot of time to loiter around and play. Uh, But then, of course, there were times when we would get bored and wanting to go back to normalcy. Those were the times where it was in the 90s, right? So there were just a few channels in national media, just a few news bulletins. That's it. There was no 24-hour news channels or no social media. So most of our stories that was happening, they were not highlighted except for the local newspaper. 
and nobody in the country because we were in such an isolated part of the country. Not many people were aware of the violence that we were undergoing, that we were facing. So I guess that was one of the reasons why I wanted to take up communication and why I wanted to work on issues that I cared about. But at that point of time, I really did not know how to go about it or what I really wanted to do. So I studied mass communication and video production for my bachelor's of arts and uh, photography was just a small course in there and I really enjoyed it. So on my 18th birthday, my father gifted me an SLR. It was a film, the Nikon FM10, and I really loved it. And I would just take it around me and photograph wherever I would travel. So that was kind of my way of expressing myself and I really loved it. So after I graduated, uh, you know, I moved to Bombay to study further and I wanted to take up photography and I approached a few people for mentorship and I did not get what I wanted because it was all about product photography or fashion, something that I was not interested, but I was more interested in documentary and storytelling. And there were not many women who were you know in this profession at that point of time just a few handful it was extremely uh, male dominated now that it is not it's still male dominated but yes i'm very happy to say that there are a lot of young women in india who are getting into photojournalism and documentary photography now so my father told me that you're not a rich person's daughter so maybe uh, you should consider taking up journalism instead of photography you know that would be perhaps a better option for you so I took his advice and I studied, you know, journalism and communication for my post-graduation. Thereafter, I joined a newspaper, which was an English national daily as a correspondent and sub-editor. So I worked there for six years in reporting and also I was at the desk, but it was not a job that I was really happy and proud of. Uh, most of the times I had to work on stories, which was mostly either about politics or fashion or celebrity or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, things that I did not resonate with me. And often during the editorial meetings, I would pitch stories that I wanted to work on and those were mostly not accepted. So that was, that was kind of like a letdown. And slowly, you know, I was completely contained within myself because I was not getting the kind of expression that I wanted to. And after six years, I, I thought, you know, this is enough. I have to do something about my life. If not now, then never. So I took a plunge. I took a risk. I, uh, you know, I applied to ICP in New York. Uh, luckily, I got through. So I left my job and I went to New York to study photojournalism um, and documentary photography. So that's, I think, the point where my life completely changed because I just plunged into this. What was that experience like compared to what you'd experienced in India then? To be very honest, some things have not changed even now, I feel. If you look at the national media in India, and if you look at photo stories, or uh, if you want to look at some nice feature full length stories in-depth investigative journalism there are very few magazines or there are very few publications who are doing it um, and uh, if you are working on a self-funded project and if you're pitching them stories they want everything for free there is not much respect for photography even now and people don't understand photography here much uh, uh, i mean it is changing there is a trend of change. People are becoming more aware, especially because of Instagram and social media. People follow 
other photographers and they're learning that, oh, wow, this is how it is done. And I, I was not aware of this issue completely. I did not know that such things could happen. So there are other avenues which have opened up. But if you look at the media scene, uh, not much has changed, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish there were more. And it's also to do about competition and budget because people don't have a budget and there is always a rush of time. There's a deadline. So even journalists and photographers who are working for the media here, they're just given half a day or sometimes, you know, a day or two to complete an assignment. And sometimes for investigative in-depth work, you need time. But nobody is willing to give you that time, you know, because of the constraints, because how the industry has emerged, unfortunately. So it's not that people are not interested to know. I think people are interested. That's why I get so many responses to my stories and images when I, when I share. It's just that, you know, the current scenario, uh, <laughs> you know, the print getting shortened and almost getting wiped out, uh, the internet full of junk, uh, and there's so much of information overload. So it's kind of like chaotic, I feel sometimes. And uh, there are stories being made and there are good work happening. It's just that you have to find out where to see them and figure out where to pitch an approach for your work to be seen. So you've got this limited opportunity to get your work seen locally, but so then how, how do you go about maximizing the audience and, and ensuring that you engage local people on the stories that you've explored locally? So I don't work for the national or the local media. I only work for international publications. And I have been doing it for more than a decade now because uh, after my stint in New York, after I uh, graduated, I stayed in New York for a couple of years. I worked there for a few publications. I also worked for a short while for a nonprofit. So I gathered a lot of network and the industry. So when I made a conscious decision to come back home and work from here, people knew how to reach out to me. So I am part of many uh, groups such as the Women Photograph Diversify Photo, which has emerged in the last couple of years. But before they came, I mean, it's just, I don't know how to put it into words, but it's just that, you know, you just email and you just say that I'm going home. I'm here for these amount of time. So if you have any work, please do let me know. So it's about making your existence, your presence seen by people who uh, you want, uh, you know, them to commission you for work. It's about that, I feel. So I work for a lot of publications, uh, as I said. Uh, I'm a national geographic photographer. I work for New York Times, Time, uh, Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, also, I worked in the European publications, uh, you know, like the Times. Uh, and uh, some French publications. So people know how to reach out to you, I guess, after you have made that kind of support base, you know, and after your work is seen and people know that, okay, she's available and know, I know how to reach out to her. So because of the, the landscape, the media landscape in India, you're actually, a lot of your work is going into the global north rather than being seen by an audience in the global south. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. But yeah. having said that, I don't think it's a bad thing because of the access to information now, thanks to the internet. Uh, you know, people here, it's not that they only look at local publications. They are also looking at other publications. They are subscribing to other newspapers and magazines. So, and I'm also sharing them on my social media to my audience. So people are 
it's it's not that it doesn't really matter where you are in this world today you know if you want to read an article about something you get that through the internet even if i'm working on a remote area in india or anywhere in the global south in nepal for example i'm working on some issue and that gets published i am sharing it that publication is also out there in the world so people are getting to know about it people if whoever is interested you know and uh, in terms of sharing it with the local audience you know you can share them on social media whatsapp is huge in global south <laughs> you know uh, it's you can share the link and sometimes they get reshared in various groups and in various places so the information is going out it's not that it's restrictive to only this particular part you know as a person of color from the global south what have your experiences been in relation to getting commissions uh from the publications and organizations from the global north you know what's what's that experience been personally but also in terms of what's being asked of you what expectations there are in terms of the stories that you're exploring and people's people's approach to representation of stories and people and communities within the global south Well, that's a lot of questions. Let me answer <laughs> them one by one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, my personal experience, as I told you, because I lived in New York and because I had, you know, a base there, and uh, while I was living there, it was not. I attended a lot of events, a lot of exhibitions. I went to uh, as many places as I could. So, I had a huge friend circle. I still have that circle, and uh, so. when i came back i'm not saying that everything happened overnight everything takes time uh, you need to have patience as a photographer i'm sure you understand that so things started moving slowly i started getting work and then one thing led to the other but the most important thing that i want to say is that one needs to invest his or her time in a personal project because that becomes your identity your brand and also what you are capable of doing what is your vision what do you care about you know apart from the assignments that you work for other publications because those are assignments that you don't choose right those are given to you but personal projects are very important because the, that is completely your take right Uh, so i worked on a project called not my shame where i documented rape and sexual violence in my country and i worked all across the country and that was first published in new york times lens blog and thereafter it was published in more than 30 uh, different publications globally so that was a personal project i spent my entire savings and my money towards this project unfortunately i did not receive any grant but i did have a kickstarter with helped me a lot so i think that was one project which gave me a lot of visibility and uh, and then i started working for non-profits uh, like human rights watch like action aid work started coming in besides publications as i said like new york times or washington post right so i have always been engaged in a personal project apart from assignments my entire focus has been on my own work on my own research building my own narrative building my own access and in between that i have always done assignments because that gives you money to pay your bills right that's important so that's that is that has been my function of working and uh, if you're speaking about uh, being a person of color and how has things been i would say it has been mixed 
Uh, I'll give you some examples. For example, I'm not going to name publications or the organizations, but uh, I had an assignment for a nonprofit, and this was an, a week-long assignment at a low-income neighborhood in, in a town in India, and we were documenting some families. So this organization was from UK, and uh, they had two people from the fundraising because the job was about the stories which was ultimately meant for their organization's uh, fundraising. So we were given a short list and we were given what we were supposed to do. And I was constantly in touch with my photo editor who was really nice and very supportive. But on the ground, while I was working, the two women from the fundraising, they do not understand visual language, right? So they are always shadowing you. And sometimes that's not nice. You need to let the other person be because that's my job. Right. And also people don't like to me if you're asking some sensitive questions and if there are two people just standing and watching you imagine the person who is being interviewed, it's uncomfortable for them. Right. So there were certain situations like that where I had to explain it to them that please give me that freedom and space. Let me do my job. And also they wanted to they I, I guess they wanted to save on the translator fee. So they took somebody from their. Uh, organization out here in India, and that person is not a professional interpreter, right? Uh, translator. So when somebody is translating, you are not supposed to mix your own ideas and words while you're translating, and that person was doing it. So I had to tell them that be careful when you're taking notes and when you're recording this, because not everything that she's saying is the same as what the person is saying. So then they started requesting me to translate and that was very difficult because I was doing the job of photographing and then this is additional thing of translating and then I had to report back to my editor with my work because that's what I was commissioned for. So these are things that you will not ask a white person in a developing country, right? Can you please translate this for me? Can you go there? Can you ask her this question? Because that's not my job. That's not why I have been hired. So these are things that I have faced while on the field. And I think if I was a white person, especially if I was a male white person, maybe they would have thought twice before making that request, or maybe they would have given me an additional fee for the translation, which I was not given. I, it was just taken for granted that I would do it because they're asking me to. And that was one example. And also there has been several times when there were certain publications from Germany or France or from even from the US where they wanted to commission me for certain work and the fee was extremely low. It was much below the industry standard. And look, I work for publications and there is a general fee which is meant for everyone, right? That's a standard flat rate. So if you are giving one third of that fee to somebody because that person is staying in the global south and you think, okay, uh, it's a lot when you convert it, you know, local conversion, you know, when you convert that money. So it's not going to impact us. That is not fair. That is completely unfair, right? Uh, you have to give the standard fee that you're giving other people for that same job. So I have faced these things and they were like, sorry, we don't have a budget. Or sometimes I have consulted them and we were just about to go for the shoot. And when I said that this budget is too low and I can't proceed, they simply shut me down and they appointed someone else for the job without telling me. So mm -hmm. that I think is very professional. And I also feel the photographer who takes up a low, low paying job is also not doing justice to himself or herself and it's just bringing the industry standard down you know if we all refuse to do a work for a low fee because uh, it's not paying well enough it's not it's unjustified 
then the person who is commissioning would have to raise the fee, right? So I think it's also a collective responsibility in some way. It's just not the people who are commissioning. It's also the people who are taking the job. They also have to be aware of what they are capable of and how much their labor should be respected. Are you seeing any improvements with time, both in terms of local photographers understanding their value and, and understanding the changing dynamics, but then also publications and organizations in the global north just being a bit more respectful of the situation? I really don't know. I think it's a very gray area because there are some people that I know that they have worked for low fee and they are emerging photographers and I know that they want their work to be seen. Uh, they they need that they need the money but I personally if because I also mentor people so I always tell that you should know your value and don't undervalue yourself because you're desperate to get a job let others be fair to you and they will only be fair to you when you stand up for yourself so I I do my <laughs> responsibility of sharing information or letting them know sometimes there are many photographers who reach out to me and they say hey I've got a gig uh, these are the number of days and this is how much they are paying. What should I do? Is it okay? So then I, I give them the advice that, okay, this is all right. This is the industry standard. Or if it's low, then I ask them that you should ask for more budget. So I give them that advice. But beyond that, you know, it's, it's beyond my capacity. And to be very honest, I don't know how much work is being given for what amount of money. I, I'm not so sure because there are a lot of assignments that are happening, right? And you know, there are conversations happening in different organizations about equal pay, about being fair, because there is a conversation I'm hoping that there is being change in that. And in terms of representation then, because having fundraisers shadow you uh, from the UK and having this shot list, which would have been made ahead of time by somebody in a UK office thinking, right, this is what we want to represent. You know, this is what we want visually. How would their demands differ to yours if you were just left alone without a shot list, without anybody shadowing you? How would you have represented what they were seeking differently, if at all? There would be a lot of change. Absolutely. Because, you know, people come with preconceived notions. And sometimes our thinking is very singular when you're sitting in another place in an AC environment, unaware of the surroundings, and you're just reading some media reports because media reports are also sometimes biased. And sometimes, even if they are not biased, they are not complete. I think many information are left out. So if I was just given the freedom to go and, you know, research, investigate, and then document, that work would be completely different. It would be far more nuanced than the short list that I was given. And when you speak about representation, there have been times where there has been some misrepresentation of certain section of people or, or communities. And it keeps on happening all the time. Every year there's some controversy, you know, or the other that you get to know in the photography world, unfortunately. And all these, I think, can be avoided if people are more open to communication, if people listen more, if people open up their minds and they are culturally more sensitive and understand. I'll give you one example. In, you know, a few years, a few years ago, I was commissioned by Human Rights Watch to go to Nepal to document child marriage. So when you think about child marriage, you know that these are underage girls who are married off by the families, right? It's all arranged marriage. And this was the preconceived notion that I went because this is what I saw in my country here in India, right? So when we went to this particular region, I was accompanied by a video 
videographer and also by the researcher from Human Rights Watch. And when we started talking within the communities and talking to the girls who were re really young, you know, 15, 16, some of them were 17 and they were already mothers. Uh, that is when we realized that these girls were not married off by the families. They eloped and they got married themselves. And that was very striking. And this was something that we completely did not expect. So when we asked them, like, why did you get married so early? You were in a school, you were studying, so why did you elope? So then the girls told us that, you know, even if we were in schools, which was government-aided, right? You don't have to pay tuition fees. You need to pay for your uniforms, for uh, your textbooks, for a lot of other school projects. Where is the money? You know, if I have to wear a torn sandal and go to school and people make fun of me, I don't want to go back to school again. I don't want to be ridiculed. And if my teacher punishes me for not doing my assignment because I cannot afford to go and buy paint and other artwork projects, that is what am I supposed to do? Who Who is going to be answerable and why should I be getting punishment for that, right? So there were certain things that the girls told us. And also some of the girls told us that we know that uh, we are going to be out of school. But the moment it comes to going to college, nobody is going to support us because it's not government aided, right? Who is going to pay for our education? And we know that that is the point where our parents will try to get us married and they will find someone of their liking and they will get us married versus we liking someone and we taking that control and marrying. So it was really about the girls taking ownership and control over their own life and making the decision, whether it is the right or the wrong decision, we are no one to judge, right? But it was their decision. So these conversations would not have happened if we had just gone with that preconceived notion, not spoken much, not spent time, and not have had those heart-to-heart -heart communication, and just photographed their daily activities and taken some portraits and come back. The story would have been completely different. But this was the nuanced story. This was the story which said a lot more than just child marriage, right? It spoke about vulnerability. It spoke about decision-making. It also spoke about power, you know, the power mm -hmm. struggle. Parents having the power over the kid or the kid wanting the power over, over his or her own life. So this is where things can change. But then that story, that the nuance nature of that and the the ability to communicate the reality rather than the pre preconceived ideas of, of um, the dynamics of the situation. That can't really be represented visually, can it? It, it requires words to accompany it, to, to explain what people are seeing within the image. It's not what they might think in terms of that particular subject, that particular issue, that there's so much more to it. And that's, that's where photography and the imagery is limited, where we need to introduce those words and introduce those layers and, and that additional information. But it also opens up the possibility for that those images to be misused and, and to misrepresent the individuals within the frame because because there is that dependency on the words, on the story behind it. So yeah, which creates a, a challenging situation in terms of making sure that that story and their stories are, are accurately represented. Absolutely. You know, um, photography is visual. It is connecting with people, right? But at the same time, photography without context can be misrepresented, as you said. Uh, sometimes it can be 
misused in many different ways. I mean, there was once where one of my images was taken and it was shown on the banner of a campaign and there was a sm- and it was a 6-year-old girl and this entire campaign was about sexual abuse at home and below the girl there was an asterisk which was hardly visible. So when you click on that asterisk it said that this photograph is for representation only. But the banner and the heading was so huge which said that what if you're not safe in your own home? What if if you're sexually abused in your own home? So people, some of my colleagues who saw it and who saw my my uh, you know my name uh, in the photo credit reached out to me privately and they said, Smita, what the hell is going on? Uh, did you approve of this? This is a girl who has been shown that she was raped and her face is totally seen. And, uh, you know, in, in our country and in many countries across the world, there are certain laws which prohibits you from showing the identity, revealing the identity of underage girls of sexual crimes, right? And in India, there's a law called POXO, which is Protection of Children Against Sexual Offences Act. And according to that act, any kind of information about that girl which can leak her, you know, her identity, even if it's a street sign, even if you don't see her face, but if it's a street sign or a house which is you can recognize, that can lead you into trouble. It's it can, you know, it's imprisonment up to two years. It's a, it's a punishable offense, right? So when I saw that photograph of this girl with this banner, I took a screenshot and I was completely shocked. I was so angry. So I reached out to this organization. Again, this is our organization <laughs> in the global north. Mm. So I reached out to them and I was like, what is going on here? You know, this is completely misrepresented. What if the girl's family sees this? What are they going to tell me? You know, I take responsibility because I am ta- I have taken the photograph, but you are showing her as a victim of sexual violence when she is not. It's completely fair. So they did not realize in the beginning. So that happens when you are not sensitive enough, when you have not done enough research and when you're very singular, I think. <laughs> Obviously, these are a few examples, but in, in a TED talk from 2021, you mentioned that uh, how documentary storytellers, when we are sharing images of people's lives, have an added responsibility. Are we representing them with dignity and fairness? Are we telling the whole story or just a part of it? And then you go on to say that you are very conscious of stereotypes and how you represent people. So you've given a couple of examples of of your first-hand experience of dealing with that, but how did you come to develop this understanding of representation and its impact? I think it's my upbringing, to be very honest. I I grew up, as I told you, and I saw a lot of things as a young child. So I felt I was not represented enough when I was growing up because our problems were never told or shared. So I think that is one, one reason. The second reason is the people that we photograph, we are nothing without them. If you go to somebody's house, they have every right to reject you and tell you no. They have every right. So I always try to put myself in their shoes and I think that if it was me, how would I have felt? It's very important to think about the other person. And that comes, I think, when your mind is open and when you're sensitive, when you listen to people. I think listening is very important because sometimes we don't listen much. We just go there, take out a camera and bam, 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 shoot, finish, shortlist, done, go to the next scene. 
that is not the way to work, or at least I do not work that way. The narrative is important, but to build that narrative, you need to give time. You need to do your research uh, because you're building a relationship with the people, but you're also building a relationship between the images, in between the images, one image to the other, right? And that is going to tell a story to the entire world. So that is a huge responsibility. And that is a lot of power. So if we have that power, we better use it diligently. Oh, absolutely. And so have you got any examples? So obviously you've given one about um, misrepresentation from an organization in the global north. But have you ever known organizations, say, within India doing the same thing and, and misrepresenting people within India? different communities within India. I was just coming to that actually because uh, I wouldn't say do they do it consciously because uh, in India you know the nonprofits there are different levels of nonprofits there are nonprofits which are bigger nonprofits which almost feels like a small corporate offices you know there are hundreds of people who work in these organizations and they have partnerships with international organizations so people who work there they are well-educated and they know communication. They know what's going on in the world. And they also have field workers who are working in the field and who bring back information from the communities. They do several campaigns and they have several projects going on in different places. And they have people commissioned to do those work, you know, a whole team doing that work. But there are smaller organizations, very grassroots level organizations who work in very small towns, sometimes in the villages. And these are run by people who are not, I would say, attuned with the social media or who are not very tech savvy or media savvy, but they do extremely good work. They know what's going on. They know how to deal with very complex and very violent situations. So I work with all different kinds of organizations, but I prefer to work with these grassroots level organizations, you know, because they work, I don't know, in Hindi they say, uh, there's a saying that they work with the ground, they work with the soil, you know, they're connected to the soil. So there has been certain situations where I was told that it's okay, you can show their faces. It's okay, you can do this, you know, because they are not sometimes aware so much about what your work may represent or how your work can go out in the world and how it can be communicated because they are not aware of this and some of the field workers that have worked they are very young you know in the early 20s they are very energetic and uh, they say okay no problem i'll deal with it you just do this you know but i feel it is my responsibility because i'm aware of the global world I'm aware of how, what a photograph can do, the power of one single image. So if I'm taking something, I should not just take the photograph with permission, but I also have to take informed consent. I have to inform the people that I'm photographing that, look, this is what I'm working on. This is what will happen once this photograph is going to go globally. Are you okay with it? And sometimes I get these kind of answers that as long as it doesn't come in the local newspaper, I don't care. And then I tell them, what if it comes on Facebook? Because all media, you know, because most of the people they're using Facebook these days, even in the villages. So I said, what if it comes on Facebook? Will you be okay? Because there is an option that it might be published on Facebook. So it's up to us to, it, it's a huge responsibility as a photographer. And as 
uh, as an example, I don't remember the name of the photographer, not that I want to use the name, but there was a particular photo documentary project where this photographer was working about food inequality as much as I can remember. So he was going around in different countries of the world, uh, mostly to low-income neighborhoods, and he was asking people, children, to imagine the food that they would like to eat. And he was placing them on the table. And then he was photographing those kids in front of that food. I was so shocked. It's a, it's a project that is very highly distasteful. And it is something that is very insensitive. And I know the people who helped him to photograph those because the organization that he approached to work with, I have worked with them. And I remember that there was a time when this became, I think it was a scandal, right? There was a kind of conversation about this. And I remember he, in some interview or in some Instagram feed, I'm not sure where I read it, but I read that he said that I was allowed by the nonprofit to take these photographs. They did not object. And that I, that statement I found highly objectionable because that is not their job to tell you what is ethical, what is not ethical, what you should do. It is your responsibility. You are going there for your work. Please do your homework before you go. Don't lay the blame on people who are giving you that access. You should be grateful to them instead of blaming them. And there was another project where there was uh, this story, this project, which got numerous awards about young girls in sex work in Bangladesh. And uh, there were these young girls who were shown with the clients. Some of the clients were as old, could be as old as their fathers. And the photographer did the job and she did not, she's actually a friend and she did not, and she was called out by various people because it was a bit insensitive. And she reached out to me in the, uh, privately and she said, I don't realize, I did not understand why I was pointed out so much. I did not go there with a bad intention. And I know that she never went with a bad intention. But the way the story came out, the photograph, some things were, I wouldn't have photographed it that way. I wouldn't have. So when she asked me, what did I do wrong? What do you think I did that went wrong? That's when I told her that, look, these are girls who are underage. Although there is no law or anything that says that you can't photograph underage girls who are in prostitution, but you are taking away that, I think you're, you're taking away that freedom that they could have to lead a normal life because your photographs are permanent. It's going to be out there in the world. What if tomorrow she gets an opportunity to be free and she wants to go back home? What if somebody sees her photograph that she was in this red light area? And what if they see her with her clients? What do you think is going to happen to her? Will she ever get a job? Will people employ her? Is she going to be ostracized and ridiculed? There's going to be a lifelong stigma her marriage opportunities will completely fade away. What do you think is going to happen to her future? And she kept silent and she said, now I understand. So sometimes the intention is not bad, but you are just not aware because you come from another space and another region and you're not aware of the cultural. That is the reason why homework is very important. I think in my, in my work that I've done, photography has been very, very tiny. Uh, I think it's like 20 to 15%. I do a lot of research, including reading laws, relevant laws, or any kind of, um, even scientific if I'm working on environmental 
issues uh, which deals with communities in the intersection of communities. I also <laughs> read scientific journals and everything just to update myself, just to know everything. So, you know, photography is much more than just taking photographs, as you must be knowing, right? It's so much more. But it also, it begs the question, yeah, intention is not enough. Most people will go into a situation with not not having bad intentions and, you know, maybe seeking to do some some good, seeking to, to raise awareness about an injustice, but then in doing so in a way that they haven't really thought about the consequences, they haven't thought through in terms of how it's going to impact the individuals who are represented within that. But what do you think is that disconnect, you know, getting from somebody who is conscious of these things, who's empathetic, who who puts themselves in the situation of the individual that they're photographing and thinks through the potential impact of that and, and how they're going to be represented and somebody who just goes in with, you know, good intentions, but somehow is ignorant to the fact that there are consequences to to them representing uh, these individuals in a particular way. What what do you think is that or some or some of the ingredients that create this disconnect between one and the other. I think photography in general has been uh, seen through a colonial construct. Unfortunately, if you look at the decades and decades of photography and, you know, if you look at the history, so it's very difficult to come away, move away from there and uh, look at things from uh, your own viewpoint, because there are different kind of understanding and biases that we come with already, right? And there is also this sense of othering, you know, this is who I, this is not me, this is they, and this is the, the that othering is very dangerous. So I think one of the most important ingredient is, uh, I would say, understanding and understanding, connecting with people, building that relationship and trust. Also, you know, understanding that what kind of consequences can happen because when we go to a particular place, we are there temporarily, maybe for a few days, for a month, but these are people who have to live in that same place. Is your image going to be responsible for something that is going to disrupt their lives? You have to ask yourself those questions. Is it going to be dangerous for them that they cannot live there anymore? Is it going to be destructive that they will be completely ostracized from there? Is it going to be so destructive that this girl cannot go back to school anymore? You know, those are questions that we have to ask ourselves. Also, I would like to share this. Uh, this is something which inspires me a lot. I've watched it a number of times, a particular TED Talk by Nigerian writer Chimamanda Adiche. Uh, it's called The Dangers of a Single Story. And if you listen to that, uh, there's a lot of questions that you ask me, which is answered there. You know, how we perceive the world and how the world is not a single story, but there are multiple angles to that story. It's just about how much we broaden our mind and reflect to understand that particular situation. But then in terms of it requires, because the, the colonial mindset, a lot of people who come from colonial, former colonial powers aren't even conscious of the fact that they have this, you know, mindset because they're, they're, they're a part of that culture and they've been brought up in it. And so it's influenced them from day one. And unless they've stopped and taken a good hard look at it and understood, you know, and, and gone out and, and to former colonies or existing colonies and just seen life there and representation of people there, that there remains a, a lack of consciousness of the fact that there is this 
colonial mindset and there is this viewpoint and that is impacting it's influencing how they engage with the world how they perceive things how they they go about photographing so you know how because you've talked about research you've talked about informing yourself building relationships but then on a broader level how do we go about decolonizing visual communication because it there's so many layers to it there's so many parts to it players involved in in that communication uh, of the stories that we're exploring so how do we go about decolonizing visual communication in one sentence <laughs> one sentence oh my yeah. god that's very complex <laughs> yeah. i don't know if i can really answer this so uh, um i think implementing aesthetic judgment with ethical understanding one sentence there we <laughs> very good <laughs> so do you, do you care to elaborate on on that what do you mean by that well you're creating a story right you mm. are trying to tell something about injustice or some some kind of issue that you care about your intentions are clear and are honest but then there are different kind of biases but when you speak about this colonial mindset it also goes both ways i must tell you that uh, i'll take, give you an example there was once uh, we were in uh, i w- i was reporting with another photographer uh, who was british we were in another country and you know i'm brown skin and she's white and while reporting uh, we were detained because we were near the border by uh, these immigration officers and uh, simply because we were carrying cameras and we t- we were taking photographs and their intention was to take money from us because of her appearances so sometimes you know it's just not about people going somewhere and extracting doing helicopter or parachute journalism there are also different issues that you know people from the global, global north also face right so these <laughs> i mean you have to be fair when you're talking about colonialism because that is also colonialism because people think just because you are white or you're lighter skinned so you must be very rich right uh, that's there and people asking you for money all the time so those that was one situation which we had to deal with also uh, i don't know if i should say this uh, but while i was working here in india before i went to new york and when i was looking for access and when i was looking to do some of the work that i wanted to do a lot of doors were closed for me and when i went to new york when my work was out there and when i had my global contacts and when i came back and when i was looking for access or when i was trying to maneuver through the bureaucracy and trying to you know get permission sometimes things just worked out because of who i was at that point of time you know so mm-hmm. again i think it's got a lot to do with the colonial mindset oh she's been to new york she studied there oh sure. so that kind of thing but i was just the same person i had not changed <laughs> mm. so again it's a colonial structure right it is a colonial mindset and again there are some things uh, for example if a photographer who wants to work on something sensitive wants to come go to any any country in the global south and is one uh, approaches the local government or approaches the local nonprofit for work Uh, it can work both ways sometimes because you're white skin people will give you access easily and not ask you questions and sometimes because you're white skin you'll be asked too many questions and you'll be stopped <laughs> so so again i i don't know if 
I, I don't know if I can elaborate or if I'm giving you the correct answer, but I think it's a very gray area that people are different. People have different reactions. It's just how we handle situations and how open we are and how much understanding we have about other people, other cultures that can help ease things. I think I was not very thinking about this. I, I don't know. No, but it's it's an interesting perspective. It's yeah, and it's important uh, to understand. It's it's as you say that it's more layered. It's not black and white. Nothing's black and white. Everything's grey. Everything's it's so complex and it's been ongoing for so long that it just permeates so many aspects of the dynamics between people and and communities. So so yeah, I, I don't think it's just an interesting perspective that you're pointing that out. That yeah, there there is um, there are other dimensions to the experience rather than the one that is often um, focused on, which is that the representation of people and communities within the global south within the global north you know because that's obviously the the big one that representation that is influenced by a colonial mindset and and the impact that that has and and maintaining the dynamic as well so yeah it's it's interesting to hear this other aspect of it so yeah um so thank you for that what uh what role and and what capacity do you think documentary storytellers have in, in creating meaningful positive change around the issues that are far removed from people's everyday experience, such as child trafficking, which is an issue that you've explored? So um, when I started working on this issue, I it was not a conscious decision to work on, you know, underage trafficking of girls, right? Uh, it was by an accident that I came across a young girl who was trafficked and rescued. And her story was very shocking because I had this preconceived notion like many people, that she was wooed by somebody who took time to lay the hook on her before trafficking her and selling her. But uh, I was very shocked to hear that she met someone on the first day, on the first date, and this was a stranger who approached her through a telephone call asking her out. And that very day that she met him, she was wooed by gifts and by sweet words, and she decided to go with him and not go back home from school. So that was very shocking. And that led into this investigation, which became a project of almost seven years. So again, when you're asking about what led me to do this or what was the kind, what was the question again? I'm so sorry. It it was just about, um, you know, how do you feel documentary storytellers, what role we have in, in creating meaningful Uh, positive change around issues that people are far removed from. So just like me, a lot of people, because trafficking is a silent issue and people have notions like, okay, these are poor girls, uh, they are trapped and they are sold and then, you know, the lives are finished, you know, and nobody really talks about it. But when my work came out, it did create a lot of discussion. Uh, It came out as Stolen Lies for National Geographic magazine. And then last year, I published a book called We Cry in Silence on the same, which was edited by Sarah Lean. And now I'm doing a campaign. This is an educational campaign where I'm going to the trafficking hotspots and also to some of the border areas where, which are the source destination and as well as the destination, which are the bigger cities. And I'm doing these campaigns and also these talks and having these exhibitions. And there's a zine that I made, which I'm giving out for free. And the zine is in three languages, English, Bengali, and Hindi. Because I want this 
information to reach out to the public, to the masses, not just the English speaking audience alone. And also the book is multilingual. So I think a conversation has started. There has been discussions. I've given talks. I've gone to schools. I've gone to universities. I've given talks in different places, in different symposiums and conferences and seminars. So if you don't talk, if there is no dialogue, if there is no discussion, how will the awareness happen, right? Awareness is only going to happen when we talk about it. So as a documentary photographer, I think I am trying from my end, you know, to bring light to the situation, hoping that it is going to change people's mindsets, uh, hoping that if any girl is being trafficked during commute, if people are aware, if they can see some kind of body language, if they can see that, okay, maybe this girl is being trafficked by this guy, maybe there's something wrong, maybe I should intervene. That person, instead of being silent, takes that action and starts asking questions. Um, that is my hope. And ultimately, my also uh, another hope is to sensitize the law enforcement and people who have responsibility in the judicial and also in different capacities. Because there have been situations where these girls, when they were rescued and when they were taken for medical examinations, there were times when these girls were slapped by the nurses. Like, you have disturbed my sleep and you girls have no other jobs. You leave your homes. You come here to earn money by doing all these nasty things. And now you're crying. So that kind of uh, statement can be made by a woman who is not aware, who is not sensitized enough. My role is to sensitize people so that they can address this issue in the sensitive um, and understanding me. For us to have impact in terms of the stories that we're exploring uh, and have meaningful impact on the issues that we're documenting, then we need to go beyond just photographing it and getting it published. You, you feel that we need to talk about it, we need to engage people more broadly, and we need to engage specifically with decision makers or you know key key people who are play a role in either addressing the issue or contributing to the issue, would that be accurate? Well, it's up to the individual, I feel. Uh, there are photographers who care about issues, for example, the opioid crisis in the US. You know, There are many photographers who have worked very sensitively on these issues and they have got the work published and then they have moved on to the next issue. There's nothing wrong in that. As a photographer, your role is to communicate, is to show what is happening, right? But as I said, for me, I would like to take it to the next level. For me, it's just not about the photograph being published or my book being published, my book being launched and I go and sign books for people. It's a lot more than that. It's also about me going and distributing these books for free to the schools and colleges, libraries. It is For me, it's important that I take a presentation, go to the schools and give a presentation and talk to you know 200 children hoping that at least at least maybe 20 of them are going to be sensitized about it or is going to deeply care about it i think then my job is done it's completely personal i think there's nothing wrong or right about how where should you stop or should you take it to the next level i have always been inspired by many photographers who have done a lot more than just photography uh, you know, Donna Ferrato, for example, with her work on domestic violence. There are so many other photographers who have done a lot more for the communities, have taken the work back. Or I have a lot of respect for those work. 
for those photographers and as as a person as an individual when i work on something i feel my work is incomplete i feel i need to do a little bit more about it and that's why uh, i'm doing this educational campaign just to wrap up then what's what's next for you what are you working on at the minute and where do you want your your work to go and, and how do you want to continue to have the impact that you're having well, uh, as I told you, I'm continuing with the campaign. I had taken a pause in between. Uh, I'm starting that again. So, I'll, uh, you know, a few things are lined up. Schools visit, talks, and some exhibitions are lined up. Apart from that, I'm currently just doing a few assignments here and there and researching on a new project. Uh, I haven't done much of photography right now because I'm studying. I'm in that phase where I'm kind of going through a lot of journals and going through a lot of reports and you know doing all that groundwork right now. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for yeah taking the time to speak to me I really appreciate it and it's great to hear about all the work that you're doing and and you are doing amazing work and, and having an amazing impact which is which is inspiring to see so yeah thank you and, and I hope it continues to to have the impact that you want it to have and, and and i hope this next project is equally as impactful if not more so but yeah thank you for your time thank you for having me it was lovely having this conversation with you thanks for listening to the podcast and before you go please subscribe to the show wherever you might be listening and please help more people to learn about smita's work and the work of everyone i've interviewed by sharing this and other episodes with everyone and anyone you think might be interested thanks again for listening and until next time take care